Hello, and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities, and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. Well, you're very welcome to our first ever Journal Club, a monthly episode of the podcast devoted to exploring some of the latest papers in subspecialty retina. This month, we're looking at some interesting publications in VR surgery, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Steele from the Sunderland Eye Infirmary in Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, Grazia Pertile from the Sacro Cuore Hospital in Verona, Italy, and Marta Figueroa from University Hospital Ramoni Cajali, Madrid, Spain. They will be our chairs, and on the panel discussing their work are Karsten Meyer at the Graubunden Eye Centre in Switzerland, and Dr. Ferdinando Bottoni from the University of Milan. Uh, David, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, have you taken part in many journal clubs in your time? Well, we, we, we used to run a regular one at our hospital, but although it's elapsed in the last few years, they're always excellent. And we are very much looking forward to tonight with two, two great papers to discuss and two great topics. Uh, Grazie, was it, was it hard to find interesting papers to, to discuss in this episode? Uh, no, no, it, it was not uh, hard to find interesting papers. Uh, as there are many interesting papers, we have uh, really uh, plenty of ideas, but I think we were able to select two very interesting topics. And uh, I'm really looking forward to discuss them uh, with, with our panelists. Yeah, well, a very warm welcome to our third chair, Marta, and to our panelists, Karsten and Ferdinando. You're very welcome. I will hand over now to the chairs to, to get into it, shall I? Uh, David, over to you. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. So, um, yes, we've got two papers tonight. And so we're going to start with Ferdinando's paper, which is on optic disc maculopathy, which is a fascinoma to VR surgeons. It always comes up in meetings and we love discussing it. And Ferdinando has done this very nice paper a couple of years back now, but we thought there was some fascinating findings. So, Ferdinando, you're going to present your paper. And um, thank you very much. OK, thanks a lot to everyone. So I, I can start saying that congenital or acquired effects of the laminar fibrosa, like, for example, in glaucoma and pachycoral spectrum disease, may determine a macular detachment. And in optic dispute, we, we likely have an herniation of poorly differentiated retinal tissue combined with vitreous collagen through the pits, which allows an anomalous communication between intraocular and extraocular spaces. And then the migration of liquid vitreous or cerebrospinal fluid, we still don't, don't know this, into the adjacent retinal tissue may develop due to fluctuating pressure gradients along the anomalous communication in the optic nerve head. Therefore, deleting vitreous connection with the optic bit represents a, a really a logical approach. Uh, vitrectomy has gained a greater consensus either alone or in combination with other procedures like uh, pericapillary laser photocoagulation, inner retinal fenestration, or autologous platelet concentrate. Um, we retrospectively evaluated 11 consecutive patients, 11 eyes, with an optic dysmaculopathy who underwent vitrectomy at our institution along a time span of seven years since 2008 till 2015. And surgery was planned for uh, worsening best corrected visual acuity, 
due to progressive increase of macular detachment. Um, aim of our surgery was the induction of a posterior vitreous detachment, a PVD. Gas tamponade was used in the first four cases and in one additional case for a iatrogenic paramacular hole. And we had one retinal detachment, which was repaired with, with one additional uh, intervention uh, using silicone oil. Parapapillary laser was performed in only one patient, number two in our series during surgery. And then we had the uh, intravitreal injection of ocriplasmin 15 days before surgery in the last three very young patients of our series. As to the results, the, the mean age was 32 years, ranging from five to 67. And one important point was that um, we had a lot of patients with inner retinal schizis in 10 eyes and outer retinal schizis in eight eyes. The macular detachment was detected in 10 eyes and an outer layer lamellar macular hole was identified in nine cases. During uh, the induction of posterior vitreous detachment, uh, there was always a tight adhesion between uh, the uh, posterior yellow and the disc. And um, two iatrogenic paramacular holes developed in two patients during dissection of the posterior yellow. And time to PVD induction was greatly reduced in the three very young patients injected with ocriplasmin. We followed the patient for a mean of 38 months. Uh, we had one retinal detachment uh, which developed a few weeks after surgery in one eye and was successfully repaired with one additional surgery. And a complete resolution of fluid under the foil was achieved in, in eight of the remaining 10 eyes with no further treatments. In all eyes, we had the same appearance with reduction of the inner retinal fluid preceding the decrease of outer retinal fluid, which in turn anticipated the absorption of macular detachment. And macular detachment decreased gradually with complete absorption of fluid within a mean of 14 months. And we found no difference in time to complete retinal reattachment between eyes treated with vitrectomy and gas for eyes for a mean of 14 uh, months and eyes treated with vitrectomy alone, three eyes and a mean of 15 months. None of the nine eyes uh, with an outer lamella macular hole developed a full thickness macular hole. And as to the functional results, Best corrected visual acuity increased significantly from 0.27 in decimals before surgery to 0.63 at final follow-up visit. And nine eyes at last follow-up visit at a final best corrected visual acuity of 0.5 or better. So I think that one important point from this paper is that we change our surgical approach, adapting it to the clinical evidence emerging either from the, the literature or from our own experience. And compared with the first case, we stopped using a tamponading agent in the last six patients because um, retinal reattachment was achieved after a mean time of 14 months. And we know that gas tamponade is usually resorbs within three weeks. So the, the rationale for its use is lacking. And additionally, we found no difference in time to retinal reattachment between eyes treated with vitrectomy and gas and eyes 
eyes treated with vitrectomy alone. So considering that optic dysmaculopathy results in many eyes following vitrectomy alone, we agree with the concept that vitrectomy with PVD induction might be considered as the initial surgical intervention and then additional procedure could be reserved for those eyes that develop recurrent macular fluid following initial resolution. Thank you, Fernando. That's great. I mean, there's so many interesting observations there you've made. Um, and I thought a couple of things is worth pointing out to, um, to people is that, you know, most of your cases had multi-layer fluid, didn't they? They had inter, inner yeah. retinal fluid, outer retinal fluid, and, and oh. subretinal fluid, which um, <clears throat> has been recognized as sort of um, as a bad phenotype, as sort of a more, yeah. a more resistant case, cases with worse vision, which is, I guess, is why they came to surgery. And also um, that um, people, not just based on your literature, but also based on papers from many parts of the world, most very prominently Japan, that people are, are, are thinking that vitrectomy alone um, is the initial surgery of choice. And, um, and that's what you would do now. If you had somebody presenting with a pit macropathy, your first operation would have vitrectomy and posterior hilo face separation. Yeah, exactly. What, what would be your second operation? So supposing the first one didn't work, and you know, and we've we've said that eighty it works in eighty to ninety percent of cases. What would you then? What would be the next thing you'd do? I think that once you have induced a posterior vitreous detachment, probably a useful thing could be the the autologous platelet concentrate. Because I mean, in our series, for example, we decided not to do anything like uh, uh, ILM peeling because it could have been very dangerous since a lot of our eyes had a lamellar macular hole in the outer retina. So uh, I think platelet concentrate could be a very nice option in, in, in a second step. The only problem is that uh, I talked with Martin some years ago and we are still uh, working, trying to get the, <laughs> the availability of the procedure in the operating room. And we have a lot of legal problems. I don't know why, but, but it, it seems very difficult. Yeah, Marta, you, we would value your advice on, 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 on the benefits of this treatment and how to do it. <laughs> well, I think that vitrectomy alone is uh, enough in many cases, as shown by Ferdinando. 80% of his areas show resolution of the macular detachment and the disappearance of the intraretinal fluid. Nevertheless, I use uh, the vitrectomy, which I think is mandatory, in combination with uh, plasma-rich in-growth factors from the first surgery. In the first surgery, we start with that. Uh, and it's really uncommon that it doesn't work. So that's why we use it. And it's not traumatic at all. It's very, uh, you know, easy. We don't have to peel the ILM. And I fully agree with Ferdinando that peeling the ILM is a high risk in patients with optic maculopathy. Um, particularly those that have the outer lamellar macula holes, but also in others um, so that have uh, very thick um, macular schizes. So I think that this can be avoided and it does not add anything beneficial for the patient. Um, treating with laser is very uh, aggressive, has a lot of consequences, and I don't think it's necessary to. Gas, as he mentioned, and I, we, we do the same. We don't use tamponade for, gas tamponade for these surgeries, but platelet-rich plasma is something different that can be very useful and very simple. But you put your platelets in. You put your platelets 
it on under air, don't you? You put, you do an air, air fluid exchange and then put your platelets on. That That's right? it. That's it. So yeah. what we do is we we um, take the patient's uh, blood sample in the OR and we prepare it uh, currently with a very safe and closed system that is the endorate kit that allows us to uh, to prepare the the plasma reaching growth factor um, in a closed system. The blood uh, sample is not um, manipulated and also has another advantage um, in comparison with what I was doing before. That is that um, once we have the platelet-rich plasma, it can be activated with calcium, inducing a very quick and very controlled um, platelet uh, degranulation and fiber formation. So if you wait five, between five and uh, 15 minutes in the OR, you can see how this firing clot forms on the retinal surface, covering the optic disc bit. And, um, and it is start working very early. And this is, I think is very useful because as we are not leaving any tamponade, it's better if the platelets activate um, sooner than, than later. I think it's very important to uh, let them work as soon as possible. So you put the, you put the platelets on, then you just let, kept, you, t you tell the patient to lie in the back 15 minutes, then they can do what they like. Yes, yes. Uh, so for the first 30 minutes, they stay um, um, uh, in a supine position to facilitate the formation of the clot and also the, the release of the trophic factors. And then the patient can do what they want. At the beginning, what we did is two, two weeks uh, prone positioning, but once we are not using gas, um, then patient can do what they want. So um, I was going to say, Grazia, with you. Um... Yeah, but uh, so you put air inside to, to put uh, the plasma rich, uh, platelet enriched plasma, and then you remove air. I can leave it there or remove it. It lasts oh, more yeah. than three or five days. To, to, uh, there are many surgeons that, even in a um, very simple vitrectomy, prefer leave air in order to decrease the leakage from the sclerotomy. So it can be, as you said, you 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 usually uh, don't leave any tamponade. So I was curious if you yeah. was keen to put air and then remove it, or if you you can leave it. You usually yeah, leave, it. leave it. You don't add gas or so. Yeah, you are right. But I was referring to gas tamponade or silicon yeah. oil. That's from. So we also uh, years ago oil, read a lot they, about silicon oil. They were in optic fit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, Ferdinando, do you think it is even better to don't use any tamponade or just easier? You do less is better. Or does it make any difference to put a, to a, panton, a tamponade? Well, we don't use any tamponade. And, and the reason is that well, it, it took really a lot of time for the macular detachment to reattach, almost more than one year. No, for, for sure. But, but what, what they think is usually that you have the, this connection from the outside the eye to collapse. And then you, have, you need a lot of time for re, the reabsorption yeah. due to the very sticky fluid underneath. Yeah. So, but, I don't know, but I guess maybe it can help to to let collapse when you remove the vitreous and you put air or gas tamponade, you uh, make the, the connection collapse. So uh, Ferdinando, do you think it is important to stain the vitreous uh, just to make sure that you remove all the vitreous 
uh, inside the pit or um, do you think when, when you detach the videos or what is necessary comes out automatically? We have always been using a term synodon, just to be sure. Our aim was to induce a posterior vitreous detachment. So we, we wanted to be sure that everything was away from the surface of the retina and from the surface of the disc. And that's why we, we have always been using Pyramcinolone to, to be sure of that. So, Marta, do and you think before you put uh, the plasma uh, inside, do you think it is important? Do you check in some way if there is any vitus left? Well, I, add, I use a triamcinolone to identify the vitreous. And once I remove almost completely, although there are sometimes a little bit of fibrous tissue on the pit itself that I don't try to remove, I leave it there. And then I inject the plasma rich in growth factors. So what about you two, David and Gracia? What do you do when vitrectomy doesn't work? So, so I was quite interested to hear you say that, you, you know, ILM peeling was contraindicated. So what I actually do, and I is, is do an foveal sparing ILM flap over the pit. That's good. And, and the reason the first one I did, which is very striking, and I'd like to know what your experiences of, of fluid resolution is, it was a redo pit from elsewhere um, that it had chronic fluid. And I did the flap, the island flap, and within two weeks, all the fluid had yes. gone. And yeah. so you get very rapid resolution, which is quite interesting, whether that was just by chance, but it, I've done about I've done about 10 subsequently, and 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 met, not all of them, but maybe 50% get more get don't have this prolonged fluid absorption phase. So I don't know whether, Gracia, do you do, do, you do ILM flaps? <laughs> uh, I have to say I was fascinated but by Marta technique. And so I tried, as she knows it, I tried many yeah. times uh, to replicate it. Uh, but the old technique without activator, uh, to be honest, I was not really happy with it because it was not really a reproducible and I was not really happy with this. Uh, now, uh, the new system is very interesting and I tried to um, connect with the technician that uh, provide the machine and so on. And I would be keen to, to try it, but the point is it's, uh, it is quite expensive. You should uh, do quite a number uh, to uh, can afford it, yeah. Can we talk about money? Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid we shouldn't okay. be the topic of a journal club. <laughs> um, I'm sure that being a, you know, a great sergeant like you are, Gracia, with a lot of patients, um, you can use it for free. Dispenses for the patient, that means the kit that, the patients, that is required for the patient is like 200 euros. That is a cost that Perfect. is added to the, to the, to the patient's uh, um, yeah, yeah, in Italy it is not like this, but it is not about the 200 euros, but it is about the uh, 5,000 euro to get the, the machine. Let me see what I can do. <laughs> okay. Why not? That's a great advantage of violin flaps, of course, they're free. But I yeah. wanted, we've only got a couple of more minutes on, on this. Now, I just wanted to get one other thing in. I, so for children now, I've started not doing, not separating the hyaloid phase. And doing inner-retinal fenestration if they have inner-retinal fluid, as Ferdinando says, it's not it's not universal. Have, have any of you got any experience of a, so inner-retinal fenestration introduced, of course, by Rick Spade? No, I don't. I do, I, I no, do I the don't. same procedure in children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me too. 
I think it's worth it. It's obviously Rick, 19 cases and they are, and, and very high success rates and it's been duplicated. You get very slow absorption, but again, it's something to consider because you don't have the hyaloid face separation problem. Yeah. So may you explain a little bit better the technique? How do you do it? So you basically do a core vitrectomy, get a, get a, a sharp, um, either an MVR blade or, or, or a 30 gauge needle, and then make a, a, um, an incision in the inner retina parallel with the nerve fiber layer in the papular macular bundle. So um, you, but you do it parallel to the fibers. I don't know whether, um, yeah, so it's um, an interesting technique to avoid. And I say, I think the important thing is if you do it with a vitrectomy, you don't know whether the vitrectomies work, but if you do it on its own, and it's, it's worth considering, I think, in children, if there's inner retinal fluid, which of course there isn't always. So it's just a partial thickness uh, incision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. no repercussion, even if the vitreous is there attached to the retina, there is no consequences on that? So as we've discussed, this is my experience of two cases so far. Okay. But, um, but uh, yeah, so I want, we should all start doing it and see if it works, because I say Rick's series is interesting. But did you do a, a, also a posterior vitreous detachment in the beginning? I mean, before the fenestrations? No. No, I mean, again, so I think when it was first described that he did it, but then subsequently he's published that he hasn't been inducing PBD. And so I haven't, it's just one, so you can do it and see if it works. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, then you can still go ahead to vitrectomy. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know. But I think a lot of children don't have inner retinal fluid. That's one of the issues. And I wouldn't personally do it with subretinal fluid alone or because obviously then it would be likely to yeah. be full thickness. Yeah. Okay. I think right. it's, very, it's particularly important to emphasize that island peeling should not be done in, pace, in young patients, mm -hmm. because the risk of macular hole development is even higher. Certainly yeah. not, not, not involving the fovea, yeah. So yeah. Ferdinando, can you tell us something about the restoration of the outer retinal layer after the surgery yes. during the recovery time? Well, it, it took quite a lot of time, but we had all the patients where the, the, the visual acuity improved a lot. There was a very nice restoration of the ellipsoid zone. And of course, if there was an ellipsoid zone, there was also an outer nuclear layer. So um, everything was very nice at the end from a morphological point of view. And well, if I remember well, we had no, apart from one patient, uh, the, the one with the retinal detachment, which who developed uh, quite a lot of atrophy in the center, but all the other had a very nice restoration of the outer retinoids, either outer nuclear and ellipsoid. Thank you very much, Ferdinando. I think we can uh, move to the second topic we want to address this evening. This is uh, large macular hole and recurrent macular holes. Kasten Mayer recently published a paper on this uh, topic, the Apostle study. Uh, Kasten, can you tell us more about this study? Yes, of course. Thank you for this kind uh, invitation. Well, when you read subretinal fluid application to close macular holes, this appears to be uncommon. We all know that macular holes derive from epiretinal traction of the vitreous and epiretinal membrane formation. And therefore, the release of all this epiretinal traction by chromovitrectomy and will achieve a closure in nowadays in, nine, in basically 90% or more. However, when you have a perfect vitrectomy, we still find persisting macular holes 
and we still maintain on an epiretinal approach. Uh, we know that you can put in silicon oil, thrombocyte concentrates, or ILM patch in, uh, with different techniques. And we hypothesize that the, um, the unclosed macular holes derived from firm adhesions between the retina and um, the RPE, which prevents the closure and therefore a release by subretinal fluid application will close these macular holes. The technique is not new. It basically was firstly described nearly 20 years ago by Gonves Bove and uh, Thomas Wolfensberger at my first um, Gone Club in 2002. And historically, you must um, think that, you know, in 2002, we were talking about this SST trial. At that time, I presented with Cindy Toes subretinal um, limited macular trench location, and we could demonstrate by subretinal fluid application, you can shift the macular up to uh, 1600 mi microns inferiorly. And I also recall that we were discussing at a journal club at Duke with Tamer was still there um, and Brooks McEwen to use this technique all for macular holes. However, this was not successful as we all know, because at that time, the epiretinal approach with vital dyes with intraoperative surgery made our macular hole surgery a success. And it took more than a decade um, when uh, Mandelkorn described it in 2017 and he called it macular hydrodissection. I did in the same year my first case, which uh, I, saw, I saw the technique also in the US by Canadian colleagues. Um, and I firstly had a macular hole of 1400 microns. It had numerous surgeries with ILM peeling, patch formation, silicone oil, and it didn't close. And this 80 year old gentleman came and I said, you know, I've seen a new technique, let's give us a try. And for me, the proof of concept was that this 1400 micron macular hole closed within a week, within a week just after subretinal fluid application. And describing this case to other colleagues, um, I learned that numerous colleagues have tried it. And um, because the evidence is so low, I wanted to evaluate this technique early on with the Apostle study. And now we have even more international uh, colleagues. So the Apostle study is a study by uh, 12 German colleagues from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, um, who sent me uh, their retrospectively their cases. Um, the duration of the macular holes was um, 17 months. And the aperture was 1200, the average, um, and the base diameter 620 microns. Um, the preoperative visual acuity 0.1, and it increased postoperative to um, 0.22. Uh, we observed the closure rate of 85%. And I will give you also another collective. So basically, in all, uh, studies we've done so far, we achieved a closure in more than 80%. In the Apostle study, we were more focusing on the approach. So the approach, the advice is if you do this, I mean, most of us are familiar with the technique because they have done it in subretinal surgery, TPA applications, and um, uh, for other indications. And um, 
you want to avoid a fast draining of the fluid um, from your subretinal needle through the macular hole. And therefore, it's easier when you uh, occlude the macular hole early, early on with a, a little PFO blab. Then you inject the fluid in the middle part between the uh, arcade and the macular hole. Um, parallel to the uh, nerve fiber bundles. There are, I learned also there are two techniques. I learned from Cindy Toast for subretinal surgery. We were approaching the retina with the jet already. And she was telling me that the jet buys, basically dissects the nerve fiber and then the jet goes under the retina and detaches, detaches the retina. I know other colleagues like Boris Stanzel who does cell transplantation um, under the retina and he basically firstly pokes under the retina with a needle and then he starts injecting. Um, and this in my eyes can induce some damage to the RPs or some, some, some tiny hemorrhages. However, uh, all our 12 surgeons, they never observed any big uh, bleedings um, for uh, a tamponade, um, early on, some colleagues used silicone oil, but more than 80% uh, used nowadays gas once they are more familiar um, with this technique. Um, uh, in the meantime, uh, we achieve, I got also more cases from other colleagues and we just presented at the subspecialty day last year and this year our, our results now we have more than 150 cases now um, I had to, I determined that it's quite interesting because there are two indications for this approach the majority are done in macular holes as we all think of in the idiopathic macular holes which are more than 120 but there are also secondary macular holes um, which have been treated with this approach and um, with a prolonged uh, observation, we see a constant improving vision for all patients by 3.9 lines. Um, however, I termed a different closure rate um, between idiopathic and um, in, uh, uh, secondary macular holes. In idiopathic macular holes, we determined um, out of 106 eyes in 93 eyes, a closure rate. So this is nearly 90%. Uh, you can achieve a closure with, with this technique. Secondary macular holes were 20 and still we achieved a closure um, in 12 eyes. In the idiopathic macular holes, the 13 eyes that remain opened, the seven of, uh, had a um, duration of the macular hole between 20 and 96 months, so probably you have really very firm adhesions or a very stiff retina, which prevents the closure. And in the secondary macular holes, this technique has been tried in five times in high myopia, repeated retinal detachments with macular hole, uh, two traumatic macular holes, eotogenic macular holes uh, during vitrectomy, DME, RVO. Um, and I was still astonished that um, the surgeons uh, demonstrated as a closure rate by um, 60%. So um, in conclusion, we can say with this technique, um, I reported you in the um, Apostle study, we had a closure rate of 85. In the latest uh, collection with 150 cases, it was still 83%. 
So the bottom line, the take home message is you can achieve uh, in uh, five macular holes, we, you will achieve a closure with this technique um, in four, at, at least four macular holes. I determined what was the largest consecutive macular hole which got closed by the technique, by this technique, and this was 1055 microns. So the bottom line is you can use this technique up to 1000 microns very nicely to close persisting um, macular holes, although we also determined a closure in a macular hole with a diameter of more than 4000 microns. Uh, we have now um, nine to 12 months follow-up um, evaluations and we determined an improved visual acuity of 4.9 lines for all macular holes. Uh, however, in secondary macular holes as expected, just 1.5 lines. So we conclude that yes, macular holes derive from vitreous and epiretinum um, membrane formation. However, if you release all these sections, you will achieve a closure in nearly all macular holes. Persisting macular holes are probably due to firm adhesion of the photoreceptors and RPE and subretinal adhesions and subretinal hydrodissections can release these adhesions, stretch the elastic retina and achieve a closure in persisting macular hole. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Carsten, for a very nice explanation of uh, your paper and very interesting results. We will see in a moment uh, and ask Marta if she agrees, and also David co-authored a very nice study uh, where they examined different techniques for persistent macular holes. But first, mm -hmm. I would like to ask you uh, something I was uh, curious about reading your paper. It is not about the results, but it is about uh, the centroscotoma. You described that all the patients complained about uh, a centroscotoma, and in all the cases, it improved after the surgery, even when the hole was not closed. Oh, it was the closed macular holes, all the closed macular holes, they saw a vanishing of this negative scotoma. So usually when you have a macular hole, especially with a long duration, the patients can cope with a decreased visual acuity, but it's um, very irritating that, that they maintain a central scotoma in their visual acuity. And by, by the closure of this macular hole, uh, you saw an improvement of the visual acuity, but also um, a vanishing of this negative scotoma. But this was, again, this was just in the closed holes, in the oh. unchanged macular holes, it, it persisted. Yes. Yeah, it was. Um, thank you for your specification. Uh, one thing, um, but because in my experience, in fact, uh, um, very few patients with um, macular holes uh, complain about uh, central scotoma. They usually don't see it. They, they cannot see properly. I don't know what the experience is or is of the other panelists, but uh, they usually say they don't see, but they don't complain about a scotoma. What's your experience? They often have a, they often have a pin cushion type effect, don't they, where they, where they see pinched faces and so on. But I guess it depends yeah. on the size of the hole. 
And these chronic holes sometimes have, you know, dysfunctional photoreceptors around the rim of the hole. Maybe they have a bigger scotoma, therefore more likely to get scotoma symptoms. Um, I was interested, um, Carsten, in, um, you know, so if you look at um, a series of techniques for, for persistent holes, you, a lot of them find 85% closure. And, and, and Naomi Lewis recently did a, a Cochrane review on this um, and found the same. And, um, you know, your technique seems to be, you know, addressing one major thing, which other techniques aren't doing, which is the adhesion business. So how can you predict which holes have got adhesion, do you think? I mean, what are the, what are the signs predicting adhesion where your technique might be better than the other techniques? Well, we are currently evaluating this and I, I'm trying to find out um, uh, a pattern on, on the preoperative OCT but I really can't tell you this. I mean, what I can tell you is that in usually macular holes where you have a lower closure rate with secondary, let's say uh, with also AMD where you have drusen or when a macular hole, if this is the eye with, um, with uveitis, you might expect some more firmer adhesions between the um, photoreceptors in the RPE in these cases. Um, it's um, uh, the closure rate is reduced, and therefore this might uh, this technique might help. But I mean, I always uh, I think it's important, and I think this is a different to Thomas Wolfensberger. They perform they performed subretinal surgery as the initial treatment, and therefore they were not as successful as we were because I think early on you have to release the vitreous traction that caused the, the macular hole. But once you have released, and this was probably 10, 15 years ago, a problem, years ago, a problem because uh, we didn't have uh, proper vital dyes. We didn't have uh, interoperative or post-operative OCT to, to confirm that you really released all um, traction. But once you have released it, I think it's um, you. We should consider it. And when I saw this technique for the first time, it it really was for me an eye opener. And it reminded me of my time in my fellowship when we were using subretinal fluid um, to close it. Um, I also learned that some people they described um, RPE changes. And I, uh, again, I must hear uh, after subretinal fluid application. Yeah. And I also must uh, remind uh, the, these uh, authors and surgeons that usually they just apply BSS. And I think, you know, 20 years we learned from Peter Wiedemann and Frank Faude that, um, and this is how we used it um, in Durham. Um, usually you should apply the BSS plus without the calcium for an easier release. And uh, we didn't observe these pigmentary changes in much uh, greater fluid application in the subretinal space. And I personally also haven't seen it. So it's either the technique of the jet uh, that you shouldn't uh, point the jets towards the RPE, or uh, my gut feeling is also that some use uh, just plain BSS um, and I think there are numerous studies that have shown that uh, the BSS plus um, without the calcium uh, is uh, the best solution for smooth detachment, artificial detachment uh, uh, of the retina during surgery. 
Yeah, this is a good suggestion, but I think it is quite difficult to direct the jet uh, in a different way than in a perpendicular way. As I guess you use, uh, do you use a 41 uh, gauge needle or yes, 38? I, yes, I use a 41 gauge needle, but I try to um, direct it away from, from the macular hole itself. And okay. I'm usually one, at least, one to two disc diameters. Um, I have a distance of one to two disc diameters from the rim of the op optic nerve um, to detach the parafoveal retina. And once I detach this, then I remove the uh, PFO blab and then you yeah. inject more fluid. I think very important is for a successful of the closure that because sometimes really the edge of the uh, macular hole itself, so, so you can you can easily detach like a donut parafoveal the retina, but um, sometimes they can be very cumbersome that uh, that you really get a complete release of the rim of the macular hole itself, and this shows me that uh, these firm adhesions, if they persist, then you will not achieve a closure of the macular hole. Yeah, Karsten. Uh, um, it's a very interesting technique and great results because it is very, very difficult to um, close a macula hole in patients with um, holes larger than 1,000 microns. This is very, very difficult, particularly for those fails macula holes that did not respond to the first surgery. So I like very much your technique. Uh, in fact, uh, with the plasma rich in growth factors that we've been talking about, I was only able to close uh, um, holes uh, smaller than 1,000 1, uh, microns, no larger than that uh, size. Mm -hmm. So it's something that could be very useful. Um, uh, when I read your paper, I, I really don't know if uh, secondary macular holes include also myopic eyes, or do you have any experience in myopic macular holes with this technique? Well, um, yes, this is a very good point. I mean, I got no more patients. I have now 150 on file with 30 secondary macular holes. And as you mentioned, they have a um, worse uh, closure rate. And my God feeling, I really have to see, I, I probably think that um, you should only do this in smaller macular holes. Um, up to 800 microns uh, if you can't close it, and there are other techniques. Um, we also just published a paper uh, in ophthalmology therapy where we actually combined it. So we combined subretin fluid application with an ILM flap, and uh, this has been done also in uh, traumatic cases, uh, and this might be also um, a feasible approach that uh, that you combine now different techniques, epiretinal and ILM flap technique with subretinal fluid application, or um, as you mentioned, the um, uh, thrombocyte concentrates. So I think this opens a new uh, field that we now combine uh, epiretinal and subretinal techniques in larger holes. Yeah. I think uh, I would be concerned in using this technique in high myopic eyes because the retina is uh, stretched, is shorter, and when you detach it, you don't know where you end up with this technique. Marta, you got very good results in my high myopic eyes, even with the uh, plasma technique. Yeah, it, uh, plasma is 
very useful for myopic eyes. Uh, as you mentioned, these eyes are more difficult to manage because of the uh, very thin ILM. Sometimes it requires a long time to remove piece by piece all the ILM in the uh, area between arcades. And um, this is mandatory, but then even if we do it perfectly, um, the closure rate is uh, really low, sometimes reaching 60%. So in our experience with uh, this plasma reaching growth factors, we have great results, achieving 90% of closure in uh, not only naive macula hole, myopic macula holes, but also in failed macula holes. Um, uh, there was a difference in the re results in terms of visual acuity between, between these two groups, naive and failed macula holes, because the visual results were poor in, uh, in uh, failed macula holes. This was um, due to the absence of restoration of the outer retina after surgery. Although the hole closed, the outer retina did not uh, recover. It, but Jeff, it was a good way to close the hole, which is always a risk in a high myopic eye because of the risk of retinal detachment. Do you ever combine it with ILM flaps, but Marta? So you could, you know, a bit like what Carson suggested in the redo holes, where you do a primary ILM flap plus platelets, do you, or, or do, you, do you do not do flaps in, in myopic holes? No, I don't do it. It can yeah. be done, but I don't do it. Yeah. I mean, our success rate was so high that I, instead of work, sometimes, it is not easy to perform a flap in a very highly myopic eye. So instead of trying to find, to get the right flap and to uh, invert it properly and to keep it in place, um, you know, I prefer to peel the ILM and then to inject. But it's perfectly, uh, the platelet which plasma is perfectly used with the inverted flap technique. It's mm. something that some authors have already been working on. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I think there's a paper on, from Canada um, where yeah. they used um, island flaps plus, plus, plus blood plus, with, with no tamponade and it seemed to work, mm. but they weren't myopic holes. <laughs> so uh, I guess the, the next step is, um, you know, so, you know, flaps, island flaps and platelets have got some growth factors, obviously, in them, especially platelets. But then um, people are, you know, the advocates of amniotic membrane and autologous retinal rafts, as you know, you're basically producing more um, um, photoreceptor re rescue type effects, you know, so when you do an autologous retinal graft, you've basically got a load of rods which um, produce rod cone-derived viability factor and amniotic membrane. Do you, do, you, do you see any role for them? And, and perhaps come back to you, Carsten, do you, do you, do you, do you, when would you use amniotic membrane and autologous retina rather than, rather than expansion, or would you, would you always try expansion first? No, I think, you know, there, I think there's a limitation in my eyes uh, above 12 to 1500 microns. I think there the, I mean, we're just calculating, but I think there, if you really have very large macular holes and in these eyes, you might consider um, an autologous draft, uh, graft. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by Tamer's technique. Uh, I've tried it in a couple of cases and uh, I think it's quite astonishing what you can achieve with this I don't know um, what what kind of cocktail of growth factors you will have then inside the macular hole, and what um, what kind of regrow you have you will determine uh, of your photoreceptors. Um, any final words from uh, Marte Grazia or Ferdinando? Because I think we're running out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> May I ask one question to to Karsten? Yes. Um, 
could you tell us something about the restoration of the outer retinal layer after your technique? You mean? Yes, you will find after uh, four months, we really find a nice restoration of the photoreceptors, which correlates very nicely with the improvement of, uh, with the functional improvement. And we are looking now on a greater cohort of 50 patients. Uh, and I also want to compare it with ILM uh, patch technique because it, I agree with you, there should be a difference on the restoration pattern, yeah. whether you close the macular hole with an ILM patch or with subretinal fluid application. But I see a very nice restoration um, of the photo, out of photoreceptor segments. Um, in, uh, it takes some time, but uh, you, you can achieve very good functional and anatomical results. Thank you. Great. So I think, unfortunately, we're out of time because I think all five of us could keep on talking all night, which is a shame because I certainly feel like it. But in any case, but then um, so I'd like to thank uh, Ferdinando and Carsten for their amazing papers um, and Marta for joining us as a panel and Grazia as a fellow um, host. Thank you very much for everybody for listening and um, hopefully you'll dial back in for the next uh, You Retina podcast. Well, thanks everyone for a fantastic start to our Talking Uretina Journal Club podcast. The papers were really fascinating. They yielded so much. And David, as you say, it's clear the panel could talk about them all day. Thanks so much to our chairs, Grazia Pertile, Marta Figueroa and David Steele, and presenting their work, Ferdinando Bottoni and Karsten Meyer. Just to let you know, we will be taking a break for the holidays. We hope you get to do the same and we will see you on January 15th, 2022 for a subspecialty focus episode on diabetes and vascular diseases. So have a great holiday and a happy new year. We will see you next time on Talking You Retina. Talking You Retina.